the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, EARC spark fires in the science fiction reader's heart and a lark in the park for those intrigued by arcane arts. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of an interview with the editor and authors of We Shall Rise, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole. This is a great new collection of stories set in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising science-based zombie apocalypse series. We have Gary Poole, Jason Cordova, Lydia Scherer, Mike Massa, and John Ringo himself along to discuss this outstanding anthology. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. We have a June hard science fiction ebook sale you should check out. Inspired by real science, gritty, realistic, that's hard science fiction. To celebrate the awe-inspiring, wonder-producing hard science fiction of great Bane authors, such as Patrick Childs, Travis S. Taylor, and of course, Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes, here are some amazing ebook discount selections for June. We have $2 off on Frozen Orbit by Patrick Childs. We have $2 off Battle Luna by Travis S. Taylor, Timothy Zahn, Michael Z. Williamson, Casey Ezel, and Josh Hayes. And we have a $2 off special on The Legacy of Herod by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. Plus $1 off on a huge selection of hard science fiction ebooks, including titles by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, Patrick Childs, Travis S. Taylor, and more. Check out all the discounts at the Bain website, but the discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. The June hard science fiction ebook sale where gravity makes things falls, the speed of light is an actual speed limit, and ebook discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. Hey, the June E-Arcs have arrived in style. Now, an E-Arc is the path a hypersonic jet takes as it skips over the atmosphere like a stone and goes where the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain, up where the weather suits our souls. No, 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 that's not what an E-Arc is at all. It's actually an electronic advanced reading copy. Now, these are ebook versions of new books that are coming out in about three to four months, usually about four months, and you can get them early if it's part of your favorite series or try out a new author early. These are the same as uh, the old ARCs or galleys. That is, they're copy edited, but not all the way proofread. But the great thing is you get them about four months early, so you can check out your favorite series and favorite authors, new offerings. So the June E-Arcs are Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated by Simon R. Green. Hyde in the shadows. Daniel Carter was a London cop who just wanted to do the right thing, but during a raid on an organ-selling chop shop, he's almost torn to pieces by monsters. Hurt and crippled, 
His career over and his life in ruins, Daniel is presented with the chance at redemption and revenge. It seems that more than two centuries ago, the monsters of the world disappeared into the underworld of crime. Guild-like monster clans have all control over the dark and illegal trades. Only one force stands opposed to the monsters, the super-strong, extremely sexy, quick-witted hides. Now Daniel is just one sip of Dr. Jekyll's elixir away from joining their company at Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated. Also out in June is 1637, Dr. Gribbleflots and the Soul of the Stoner by Karen Offord and Rick Bodride. Science and Medicine versus Flim Flammery. Thomas the Great Stoner Stone once performed miraculous surgery upon Philip Theophrastus Gribbleflots, the world's greatest alchemist, using his bare hands, no anesthesia, and producing no pain and leaving no scar. It would have been wonderful if only it were real. But Dr. Tom Stone, the face of modern medicine in 1637, has been engaging in fake treatments, bringing all modern medicine into question. Gribbleflots, who has learned a thing or two about actual science from those uptimers from Grantville, West Virginia, decides to go to Padua and turn his problems into Dr. Tom Stone's problems. 1637, Dr. Gribbleflots and the Soul of a Stoner by Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright, EARC, and Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated EARC by Simon R. Green are now available for the nonce exclusively at Bain eBooks and the Bain.com website. This is part two of a two-part roundtable discussion on We Shall Rise. Part one is available on last week's podcast. John, your comment about uh, protecting existing infrastructure so that as we march back towards the basis for a continental civilization that's actually connected, it's still federated. Um, it isn't just the big infrastructure that matters. It's going to be little things that are going to, they are, they are basically laying around and rotting. And I'm trying to think of an example of that. Uh, it occurs to me that, you know, in the world of 2012, 13, and 14, there are tens and, or hundreds of millions of cell phones. And talk about something that's worthless now. There's no power readily available to charge them, and there's certainly no cell network to use them. But the gleaners in the, in the two novels that we shared, uh, that, although they were fundamentally evil, the guy in charge was brilliant, and he knew he could see ahead to, it makes sense to save everything you can. So he was warehousing and cataloging everything. You find a cell phone, you pick it up, you stick it on the shelf. We'll need something like that or its components later, because we're not going to be able to make what it's made out of for a very long time. But we're not going to be able to make what it communicates with for a very long time. Um, you know, it's, it's not just a cell phone network. You know this because of the industry that you work in. I mean, it's a huge, sure. you know, if there's, if there's two pieces of infrastructure that nobody thinks about that would be really, really good to figure out a way to get to them and get them back in operation, get power to them and get them all, you know, get them back working, it's May East and May West. The Think about it. Yeah. yeah, they're the two central nodes of the internet. Now, um, 
I can't remember who it was. It was Kevin J. Anderson wanted to do a thing about bringing the internet back, bringing the whole internet back, forget it. But satellites are still up there and you might be able to get satellites operating. But the thing to remember is we're talking about 2012. We're not talking about Starlink. Um, Cause this all started in 2012. Um, but every satellite is essentially a server as well. So if you've got the satellite networks working again, which they are in part, because we know that because they were using sat phones, um, you well, essentially have the beginnings of an internet, but you really kind of need to start setting up the primary nodes. Uh, anyway. I, I, don't, I don't see why you couldn't just do it with a fleet of Hueys. Apparently they're indestructible <laughs> from your description. Of... I tell well, you what. There, there is a place that you can go to find airplanes that are not flyaway ready, but with minimal effort ready to go. And that's Davis Monson. Davis Monson. Yeah. I've been there. What is that? If you, if you need, if you need a B-52, the place to go is Davis Monson. Let me tell you, they've got, <laughs> because when they, when they, they, they did one of the treaties with the Soviet union back when there was a Soviet union, it was like they had to take 500 B-52s out of service. And they are all sitting there on Davis Monthly. There are miles and miles and miles of B-52s because the treaty said that they had to be kept in one place so the Soviets could keep an eye on them and make sure that we didn't use them. So we stuck them all in Davis Monthly, and they are still sitting there. Miles of B-52s. That also sounds like an excellent uh, uh, plot twist in a Ringo novel. <laughs> After, uh, yeah, the B fifty two, the B fifty two is the plane that will never ever stop flying. When we have jet, when we have spaceships that are going between planets, they'll be like, we need a, we need something to fly around on the planet. Oh well, we'll just pack up a B fifty two and take it. We still got thousands of the freaking things, and it still work. Where is this place, by the way? Davis Moffin Air Force Base is in Arizona. It's in the middle of the desert, very dry, very easy to put stuff that won't break down. And it's, it's so and isolated that getting to it, uh, unless, unless you're on one of the approved routes and you're under surveillance, you'll kill yourself on foot trying to do it. Well, you could probably do it in a Huey. So. Well, of course. That goes without saying. Yeah, well, they, they'll fly in 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not far from Tucson. Um, oh, okay. I was at Tuscon and I got invited by one of the guys that worked there, Miriam and I got invited by one of the guys that worked there to go over and just tour around and you drive around for a couple of hours and it's just miles and miles and miles of freaking airplanes. I, I, I had this weird idea for a story where we were getting invaded and you needed to have a bunch of aircraft and it didn't really matter what kind of aircraft you had. And it was like, well, we've got lots of them in Davis Monson. We just got to get them working again. Uh, that's pretty cool. God, you could probably see uh, you can, space, right? I mean, you can see it in Google Maps. Um, you just uh, type in Davis Monson, and uh, and you can see just miles and miles and miles of all sorts of freaking airplanes. Hmm. So, uh, Mike's Mike's story to return to I I really liked. Uh, um, uh, Senior Chief uh, Washington, as well as um, Billy Joe, um, he's kind of a character. He, uh, 
very no nonsense, and um, he might very well just uh, end it for Billy Joe if he does something um, untowards. Right? I mean, the guy's on probation. Yeah, he's he's a he's a very senior, very seasoned uh, Navy non commissioned officer. He's a he's a senior chief, uh, and and furthermore, he's off of one of the submarines. Uh, in John's original novels that was tooling around waiting to get the vaccine. You know, that was that was a big focus of the intermediate step in the original Smith family plan, which was get the vaccine sufficient to protect all the engineers and all the technically trained people on these submarines because they're going to help us bootstrap into the next decade. Uh, and so he's one of those guys. Um, being on those submarines, as bad as it was, was better than being on land in most cases, but just Barely. I mean, they were surviving on a diet of, of fish for how long, John? Months and months. Um, so they're still recovering their their health, frankly, their equilibrium, and they are they are absolutely not in the mood for any bullshit. They may be a bunch of swabbies, but they've been in the on the under pretty horrible conditions uh, for a long time. And I tried to I tried to describe the senior chiefs. Thing, you know, they had nothing new but be in the submarines and think about what was happening on land. Their families are gone. Um, and in some cases, I make a point of they can get close to the cruise liners and they can you can hear really well on the hull. If you're close enough to a ship in a modern submarine, you can actually hear people talking on the ship. That's especially true for when the main machinery is turned off, like a lot of these big ships were. So they're listening to other humans being hunted and eaten. And that's that'd be pretty harrowing. Have you? Uh... Yeah. Um... Being on a submarine under the best of circumstances sucks. Being on a being in a submarine under these circumstances, uh, one of the the unreality aspects of this book, from my perspective, when I was writing it, the the main books, was that all the submariners weren't just freaking killing themselves, because the conditions would have gotten so freaking horrific, um, psychologically and physically, that. Uh, the fact that the submarines lasted as long as they did with their crews under the conditions that they were, uh, either as a testimony to the Navy submarine program, which it probably would be, or it's extremely unrealistic. Um, I'm not too sure which. A little column A, a little column B, I suspect. It would depend on the individuals, especially the leaders. Well, yeah. aren't, aren't submarine guys supposed to be crazy anyway? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, if if there is any group that would have been able to do it, it is specifically U.S. Navy uh, submarine warfare pe sub warfare people because they are uh, very highly selected, and their emotional stability is just off the charts. But they are at the same length. Their their emotional stability is so off the charts that they are. They are definable as totally insane. Um, uh, doesn't, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I did uh, a on a nuclear term. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, and I, I've known several submariners, and they're all very, very cool guys. Um, but their stories about just being on a submarine under normal circumstances are psychotic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put it oddly. Where you where you're dealing with this situation, it's like, yeah, well, it's just gone from psychotic to I don't know, Hannibal Lecter psychotic. Um, 
So yeah, anyway. Yeah, but to, to your point, Tony, uh, Tony, 100% agree. If, if Washington thinks that Billy Joe is stepping outside the bounds of, you know, left, right, up and down of what these probationers are allowed to do, uh, he would absolutely not hesitate to end the man. And yet at the same time, like a lot of good leaders, uh, he has some empathy and he recognizes that Billy Joe is trying to be a better man, trying to improve himself, uh, is demonstrating, you know, positive qualities. And, and he actually gives the lecture on, look, there aren't so many people we can't afford to give everybody another, we can't afford not to give them a chance. And, and John's characters have brought up the, the notion of what goes on in the compartment stays in the compartment. However, we're not in the compartment. We're not in that place anymore. So what you do from this point forward, it counts. And Washington makes that point. And Billy Joe takes that to heart, but maybe in a direction a step too far. Or maybe not. It depends on how you feel about Billy Joe. Yeah, honestly, Mike, I loved the ending. Like, it was sad that he decided he needed to do what he did. But mm -hmm. I think it was the right choice for the character. It's what the character would have done. And I think that's the best um, you know, way to write a story is create a character, create a framework uh, for a person, and then just let them be who they are in the story. Yeah. I think that resonates most strongly with readers. So. Well, I can say yeah. I'm never going to look at my commuter mug again the same way. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of frightening to think. <laughs> well, thank you both. So uh, what coffee is hard. Co <laughs> coffee is hard. It really yeah. is. I mean, I'm sitting here with a cup of coffee and, you know, just go to the Keurig machine, get yourself a cup of coffee. No big deal. Coffee is hard. Hmm. That, so uh, maybe explain, because the character says that a couple of times and, and we hear it in Mike's story. Uh, what does that mean? What's what happens in the apart compartment stays in the compartment? Well, that's from the first um, one. Yes. Uh, in in the time. Sorry, I hit mute right in the middle of that. Um, under the circumstances they were in, everyone had to go into an area that they could defend against the infected. Um, the only people who survived were people people outside of a defensible position. Um, did not survive. So you had to go into a place where there was sufficient, some way to get food, water, and, and shelter, and you could survive there. So for example, um, I haven't written it, but one of the things that, that was in my ideations about moving on the land is you'd find people inside of uh, the, the supply centers for Walmart and inside of Costco's and that sort of thing. Because there's lots of food and you can figure out a way to get water from rainwater, at least if you're not in California um, or, or Arizona, you know, if you're not in an arid area. But even then, they've got pallets and pallets and pallets of, of drinking water. Um, so you got to have water, you got to have food. But because people were caught inside of these confined areas, they were under siege for long periods of time. Frequently, there were questionable actions taken while in the compartment. Um, and some of those came down to, well, the, the biggest one was when people turned, you had to kill them. And a lot of people were afraid of being charged with murder. Um, but there were also things that, you know, uh, there were rapes which occurred. 
Um, there were murders of non-infected, and sometimes it's like there's one person left in the compartment and everybody else is dead and eaten. And it's like, oh, they, they, all, they all turned, and I just ate them one by one, right? So you had Richard Donner. Um, but there was – there's so much of it going on. It came down to what happened in the compartment stays in the compartment. And we are not going to judge on the basis of what occurred in the compartment. Under any circumstances, we do not judge what occurred in the compartment. Once you're out of the compartment, you are no longer in the compartment. You're now under controlling legal authority. And if you think that what you did in the compartment you're going to keep doing, yeah, then we'll put you down. Um, but you couldn't really judge people on the basis of what happened in the compartment because there were no – uninvolved bystanders, among other things, um, and because there were so many different things that happened in the compartment. So it was just what happened in the compartment stays in the compartment. Let's see. Well, let's, um, let's talk about Lydia's um, story, which is, um, which is a dog story, which I really appreciated. Um, <laughs> what was, uh, and, and it is a rural story, um, which is also cool. Um, just, I mean, just sort of set it up. Tell us about Frank and and how he's got his dogs working. And okay, um, well, first of all, I'm a huge animal lover. I'm mainly a cat person. My Love Lies and Hocus Pocus series has a very snarky talking cat who plays a large role in it, and so I love writing animals as main characters. And I wanted to try my hand at dogs because I love dogs too. Um, they're just they don't speak to me, I guess, quite as uh, speak to me quite as well as cats do. Um, but I wanted to try out dogs and I've always wanted a trained dog, like a, a German Shepherd or Belgian Malinois type um, companion dog, uh, you know, guard dog, whatever. Just they're a lot of work. They're, they're high maintenance. I mean, you got to commit. Um, and I didn't have that space in my life. I haven't had that space in my life. Maybe when I'm older, my kids are moved out. Um, so I was just really fascinated by the training process and by um, you know, the temperaments of the dogs and what's involved in training them and how the police use them and how they're used for guard and personal protection and how they could be trained to be zombie attack dogs. And I contacted several large um, training services around the United States and several police departments. Um, in fact, I have an author friend who writes a book series about a policeman with his police dog, who is a dog trainer in um, the Colorado Springs area, I believe, um, who's a friend of mine in a marketing group that I'm in. And uh, we talked for hours and actually got to meet his dog over Zoom, who is very cute. Um, and he, uh, we talked like at two in the morning because, you know, I have babies and uh, he was on a night shift, talked about like two in the morning for an hour or two about his dog and, and all that's uh, involved in that. So I just had a really fun time learning about all that stuff, doing research for it and figuring out how you could realistically teach these dogs to do a zombie attack. And it was scarily easy. Like the guys I talked to like, oh yeah, you could totally train dogs to attack zombies because they would know instantly by smell who was infected and who wasn't. Doesn't matter how crazy they're acting, dogs know. Um, and so it was, you know, very believable and, um, it was a very fun idea to run with. Of course, the problem you get is numbers. Of course, you get masses of zombies, then you know the dogs will get overwhelmed. So I had to have it in a rural setting 
um, which worked very well into my background. I grew up on a uh, cattle and crop farm out in, I mean, where the story is located, Shelbyville, Kentucky. And I grew up on a farm doing farm things. You know, we had dairies, we had, but this before I was born, but we had hogs and mules back in my dad and my grandparents' day. And in my day was mostly beef cattle and dairies and corn and soybeans and tobacco. Um, and I grew up a farm girl and loved it and I miss it. Um, and our farm was very large. So we had a lot of industrial equipment and now most of the farming is done on an industrial scale. Um, the farming that was done, you know, on, on a more like smaller farm individual people like small, like that's not done a whole lot anymore, at least in my area, because a lot of the farms have just come together or there are professional farmers who own or are, you know, own the lease on these gigantic pieces of farm equipment that do all like the tilling and the spraying and the harvesting on all these other farms around them. And they all just kind of pull together for these, these massive pieces of equipment that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to, to own and run. And so it was kind of, it's kind of a different, farming looks very different today. Um, than it did back when I was a kid and back when my dad was a kid. And I was just very fascinated by the idea of, well, today, or 2012, obviously, zombie apocalypse, what do all the farmers do? You know, all these stories that I absolutely love, they focused on the ocean and then infrastructure and cities. Nobody had really talked about farming communities um, and what uh, I actually considered doing a story about the animal infrastructure, about a livestock infrastructure uh, issue, about how to save livestock, how to keep them safe, how to get distribution of meats and breeding programs like back into play, um, and decided not to go with that because it wasn't very interesting uh, compared to attack dogs and mowing down zombies with combines. Uh, so I went with the, you know, the farm equipment uh, idea and just talked about how um, Frank Oberman, who was a career Marine, um, who had come home early he'd meant to stay for the full 30 years and you know had some marriage issues and his wife said you got to come home take care of your kid kind of thing and so he came home early and didn't really fit in any of the jobs that he tried to get so he decided to start a, a kennel uh, training police dogs and personal protection dogs and so he lives out in the country and has these dogs that he trains regularly and he was getting a shipment of new um, Belgian Malinois pups from uh, Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, they actually have some of the best breeding programs um, for those breeds in Eastern Europe. And um, he was getting a shipment of dogs and picking them up at the Louisville airport when he saw some guy go zombie, you know, one of the luggage loaders go zombie and tear off his clothes and attack like his, his fellow. And he went straight home, like sanitized everything, went into town with, and maxed out all of his credit cards, buying like electrical fencing and like all these supplies and basically rallied his farming community together and convinced them to start this collective in the sense of, we're all going to help look out for each other. We're going to you know, build these enclosures with electrical fencing and put our livestock together and we'll have a base of operator. So basically he, he got them prepared before uh, before everything went dark. Um, and so the story itself happens a year after the fall where basically they've survived the winter, you know, had a, a high attrition rate. A lot of people have died, you know, almost all the women, you know, who are of childbearing age, you know, have kids now, um, which is good because you need to rebuild the population. Um, and so now they're just trying to figure out, well, we, the, they were able to winterize the equipment. Um, and they were able, they had several uh, big uh, farms in the area who, you know, the owners died or turned into zombies that have great big 
hoppers is not really the right word. Hangers is not the right word because that's for airplanes. So I guess you could say hanger for these giant pieces of equipment. And they have, you know, supplies and tools and all these mechanical items to kind of get them through that first year. But now the first year is over, things are breaking, you know, their medicines run out. Uh, you know, they've got, they've got food, they've got water, um, but all their technology is breaking and they're not going to get vaccines for years. Probably they have this whole conversation they hear on the, um, the hand radios about president Staba gets, uh, you know, United States is United States again, there's a president, but there's no way anybody cares about us in our little farm. Nobody's bringing us a vaccine. So what do we do? We got to take back our town. We got to take it back. We got to get our infrastructure back. Um, so the premise is sort of, they have this town meeting at the beginning of the story and have this brainstorming session of, yeah, hey, how, is, what are we going to do? Really fun part of this. Oh, it was so, it was so much fun. Yeah. They're just brainstorming. Like, how do we get rid of, because to the Shelbyville area, they estimated about 14,000 people population, probably about half of them are remaining as zombies. So you've got around 7,000 zombies. They don't have ammo left, like hardly any ammo left. How are we gonna kill 7,000 zombies enough so that we can go back into the town relatively safely and start salvaging things, start saving survivors and start um, rebuilding things. And so, yeah, it involves bat wing mowers and pesticides and gigantic corn and soybean combines and you know these attack dogs and and uh building crossbows and it was a lot of fun it's nice the way that you 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 go through the the possibilities and 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 it's really the women chiming in that comes up with the answer yeah yeah absolutely i mean and i, I obviously i was never married to a farmer because that was me growing up but i saw every single person in that story is named after people i knew growing up it's not exact names the names are kind of like mixed up or changed slightly um because i wasn't able to contact everybody and get their permission to use their name um, <laughs> but a couple of people i i could like the hornbacks um are our farming partners who still farm my family's land um in shelbyville and mr hornback paul hornback who also happens to be a state senator um, was very pleased to be in the book and I will be mailing him a signed copy of it once uh, I go to Dragon Con and get it signed by as many of the anthology authors as possible. I'm going to mail him a copy. Um, but yeah, those are all people I knew growing up. And so, you know, every, like the LeCount, the, the LeCounts, you know, Mrs. Rogers, uh, Roger Gaines was a, a person who looked after our house whenever we were, we were away. He taught me how to hunt had a deer hunt, you know, taught me how to uh, dress a deer and package the meat. So yeah, all these people in the story are yeah. people who I knew. That's cool. And really what the story is about is Frank's, uh, I mean, Frank is pretty depressed. Oh yeah. Well, he had to shoot his wife in the head. Yes. <laughs> and it's and it's sort of the way the community uh, might lead to his redemption or at least give yeah. him hope. Yeah. It's yeah. A, well, his, his... A touching story, although there's lots of zombies being killed by enormous machines. Yeah, yeah. That is that is fun. Well, I mean, it's, I feel like country people, uh, in general, are very religious people, and they're very spiritual isn't the right word, because that's term has been hijacked, I feel like, uh, to mean something different. But, you know, we're out in our land, and we're at the, you know, whims of the weather. And a lot of times, you just got to do your best and trust. And it's a very close knit community, people are very, you know, your neighbors are your family. Uh, and you got to take care of each other or none of you will make it. And so it's a very different culture than most city cultures. Not all, of course, there are really tight communities in some cities, but it's just, you know, the culture of we're all family and we all have to just trust and hope. But if you lose that trust and hope that you've 
pretty much lost everything. Um, you don't want to go on. And so I just wanted to kind of show how it hurt his daughter, Maggie, you know, was trying to be the, you know, it wasn't your fault. We all had to go through bad things. Just don't like, don't let it end you. And then his dogs provide a nice focal point for, you know, the kind of the redemption arc. So, or the, or the him coming around, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's a very lyrical story. I have a quick question for the group because uh, Lydia mentioned using different farm machines, heavy equipment for zombie clearance. Um, and I, I, I thought about that. We, we had a, at the fantasy panel, I think you might have, we might have been there, Lydia, it was a, you know, the, the messiest way to, to kill off zombies and job lots. Um, and I was arguing that farm equipment wouldn't, like, like threshers and combines, wouldn't be a good choice because even though they can go through, you know, small brush and so bones aren't an issue hypothetically, that they would choke on medical implants like artificial hips and so forth. Is there, is, is there ever, John, has there ever been like an official uh, ruling on how we would do on mulching zombies with medical implants? What kind of machines could handle it? Um, there's, ne there's never been an official ruling on it. Um, but I have to admit that Larry Snowcutter is probably a better choice um because larry korea in uh in one of his monster hunter books had a whole bunch of they were crossed between werewolves and super zombies mm. and uh he cleared a bunch of them using a snow cutter an industrial snow cutter but but he had it that even with the snow cutter which has a great big grinding blade um that they eventually jammed it mm. um so it would be, uh, I, I'm definitely not going to step on Lydia's story and say, no, Lydia, that, that wouldn't work. Um, I, I love the story. So, I was just thinking in general because we were all at, the, at Fantasy a, a couple weeks back. Well, well, and Mike, also, you have to remember that um, at the end of the story, they park the equipment outside town and it's done. It's gone. They're never using yeah, it yeah. again. So, so one, it's one not of the so things much. about it is, the, if, if I may, um, Mike, you were in commercial fishing, right? Yep. I mean, you came out of, uh, Lydia came out of farming, you came out of commercial fishing. Um, and just as with commercial fishing, there's all sorts of things that can bite you and take stuff off. Farming equipment takes stuff off of people all the time. Um, so you can talk about medical implants. Medical implants aren't hugely common. Yeah. I mean, they're much more common. One thing is they're much more common now than they were in 2012. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, bone and stuff like that, I don't know a piece of farming equipment that can't just shear right through it. Oh yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, so it, yeah, so it, it, the, the equipment would be done at the end of it, and it might jam during it. But uh, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna chew quite a few zombies. Yeah. Not um, quite as well as the sliding M1 tank. Um, no. But they don't have tanks, John. Come on. These are farmers. They don't have their tanks. They're not fancy like your people. Fort Knox. That's so, true. That's true. But this is not far from Fort Knox. Okay? That's very true. Um, that's very true. But not far in today. That's not the same thing as not far in zombie apocalypse. In zombie apocalypse, that's like a multi-day harrowing journey. Mike, to just answer your question a little bit more um, specifically, um, I, I, you might remember I addressed, they disconnected the innards, meaning all the things that processes like the corn and the soybeans inside, sure, sure. they disconnected all, of course, it would absolutely gum that up. 
Um, and also I imagined, except for the bat wing mowers. So the bat wing mowers are just gonna tear everything up, cut off all ankles and just sure. cutting the shreds. Um, but like the combines, for instance, are much more there um, for a crushing effect because they are not going to be stopped by the masses. That's kind of the thing. They had to have these huge equipment that was so big and had so much inertia and so strong engines that sure. even with zombies packed, that would stop a truck. Like that would just pile in a truck. And they did on that truck in the front that these big bulldozer and combines and stuff would just be able to roll right over that and crush things. Because remember, it's not even the crushing and cutting that killed most of the zombies. It was the pesticides. That's what killed well, most I, of the I, zombies. I have a question coming to the story, Lydia. Rather, I was. This is a topic they came up and was argued at. Uh, at yeah, at uh, that panel at, at Panasonic. Yeah. And someone who clearly doesn't have farming experience said, "Oh, that, you can feed whatever you want through a wood chipper; it never jams." And I didn't push the argument then, but I, I would have pointed out, well, I've, "I've run a wood chipper, and it jams all the damn time." Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Wood chippers jam all the damn time. Uh, that's a person who has never actually done anything in their life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Somebody, somebody suggested one time that 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 I might take over the uh, the writers' workshop at DragonCon, and I said, uh, "Now I, I recommend Mike Stackpole," and I said, "You definitely don't want me to take it over because uh, it would be all right, maggots on your feet. I want you to run up the top of the Hyatt, come back down, then write 500 words on how your goddamn legs feel." <laughs> That would be my writer's workshop. <laughs> well, you have uh, you have conducted a, a sort of writer's workshop over a, a period of years, developing this series that so many people have taken part in. Um, can John? Can you and Gary kind of sum up what? I mean, we're a long way into this, and we've got some amazing uh, contributions, and you guys have, have put a huge amount of thought into it and and heart. Um, where are we with Black Tide Rising and, and what is to come and what's going on? What's, what's your thoughts? Well, before we get into that, I would, well, I would like to get a shout out to uh, the other authors in this anthology because it is an amazing collection of oh, writers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Kevin J. Anderson and his wife, Rebecca Molesta, came through um, rather fairly late in development and uh, turned in, I think, a really, really interesting story. Um, and in many ways, it kind of ties in with Jason's story because it deals with uh, troubled youth. And it's just, it's a really interesting take on where we look at the future there. Um, and, you know, Kevin finding time to write the story for us because he's incredibly busy was really nice. Brendan Dubois, I mean, just, you know, class act, a real gentleman, turned in another great story. Uh, Michael Z. Williamson and Stephanie Osborne. This is a story I think is going to be uh, one that a lot of people talk about because they really kind of push the edge of existing technology, but you know, they're NASA geeks, they're space geeks, and they want to get that one final space launch before the space program is done for centuries. Jody Lynn Nye, once again, continuing her series that has been through the, the last two anthologies, a really cool area there. Uh, Jamie Ibsen, who is uh, new to the series, I think has a really nice story, Brian Trent, he uh, won the, uh, what was it, the Military uh, Fiction Award last year? The Bain thing, didn't he win that? Right. Yeah. Yes, best, uh, science, best military science fiction. Yeah, and he, he jumped into this series with uh, both boots on and turned in a great story. Casey Azell, who, of course, has been with us for quite some time. Uh, Christopher Smith and Brent Rader. This was fun because, uh, of course, John, you're writing the series with Casey and Christopher. Uh, Gunpowder and Embers was a really great book. 
And Brent is someone that we've all known for years. Uh, we call him the evil penguin. And uh, he really, uh, he came through and uh, I thought it was a really interesting partnership with him and Chris. So there's a lot of good stories in here and a lot of different takes on how people rise from the ashes of you know, a fallen society. So I just thought it was a real interesting collection of stories. And a lot of them, you know, some of them made me smile. A lot of them made me uh, cringe and a lot of them made me think and cringe in a good way. Cool, yeah. There are, uh, once again, uh, an amazing assortment. Um, anything you might want in your, your post-apocalyptic world, you can find in this anthology. So, um, so uh, some final thoughts, John, uh, Gary. I think the future of this, uh, one of the things is that a big part of the last book that was written in the main series was how are we going to clear all of these and, and the thing to remember about the infected is that they're they're basically just insane human beings. Um, and Steve Smith was looking at um, Steve Smith, who's a main character in the main series, is looking at some pretty brutal, the most brutal and efficient way you can do it. Um, and one of the things about Lydia's story is that there's going to be a lot of people that are just going to be coming up with their own ways to clear large numbers of zombies. So going forward, it might be, um, what did your characters do to help the overall? But it, one of the things is, uh, and I'm trying to, to think of the way the title would be, but um, uh, Alexander de Tovel in Democracy in America, which was written in 1789, said that of all societies that I have studied, Americans are the only ones who form random associations for the common good. And I think going forward, um, I'm, I'm thinking about leaning on that concept and continuing to focus on the United States. Uh, the other possibility would be to go overseas and look at how other societies did it. Um, but I'd like to, to think about focusing on uh, uh, United We Stand and how communities like, uh, like Lydia's would begin working with other surrounding communities who have also been you know, doing things to survive and how we start to reunite and how communities would get together to, okay, so you've got the warlord or the gleaners who's trying to trying to take over a big area and is doing so in uh, you know, a fairly traditional fashion for outside of the United States. And then you have the, the groups that go, no, man, that's not how we do stuff here. Um, and then refocus and, and fight that or how communities get together to, to do things like support infrastructure. Um, one of the stories that uh, I wouldn't necessarily write it, but I, I think about trying to find somebody who likes the idea is, again, going back to the Appalachia, uh, I can see just a whole bunch of Cajuns that know that they're going to get flooded out if that thing fails. You know, everyone's going to die in the area. So until the Army Corps of Engineers comes along to, to fix it, we got to do it, right? Um, so I'm, I'm looking at you know, how do we unite? How do we begin to rebuild our, our trade network? How do we start to rebuild our communications? How do we start to uh, 
how do we start to reconnect? The total population of the United States at the at the point that most of these stories are taking place is probably 10% of what it had been. So say 270 million, there's now 27 million people scattered across the entirety of, of well, less than that, say 25 million people scattered over CONUS, which is the, the lower 48. Um, how do, and, and I'm not too sure when that was last the population of the United States, but it was a long time ago. Um, but how do we start to, uh, how do we start to reconnect? How do we start to start, start coming together again as a nation, um, is, is kind of what I'm looking at. One of my face, favorite post-apocalyptic stories of all time, I thought it was just fantastic, was The Postman. Um, and it's, it, not the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, the book's very, very. The book's fantastic, but. You know, one of the things is, uh, you know, how do we restart the Postal Service? And, you know, we look at the Postal Service now and we go, oh, you know, it's just a bunch of kind of dumpy people going around delivering Amazon packages. Um, there's a great book called The Barefoot Postman about how Postal Service worked in, in the 1800s in Florida, um, where, you know, the, the postman would basically jog along the beaches between these these small settlements, and sometimes have to swim across uh, alligator and shark-infested inlets to get to the other side. I mean, <laughs> it was a different deal being a postman back then. Um, so these are the sort of things that, that I'm kind of looking at in the future, is how do we reconnect as a people? And how many times is it just people like uh, uh, Lydia's group or Jason's group or whoever going, okay, we're kind of stable here. We need to help those people now, um, which is what people are going to do. Um, and that's kind of what I'm looking at for the future. Sounds great. And, and you know, United We Stand sounds like a great title for the next. I think that's a perfect title. Like the progression, <laughs> like we shall rise, United We Stand. It's perfect. I'm sure you've written right. that down already, Tony, right? You wrote yes, I did. Note. Okay, good. Black, black, tide, black Tide Rising. Um, voices. Oh, of I, I can't. Voices of the fall, which is you know, was about being in the fall. We've hit the bottom. We shall rise, and then united we stand. Um, yeah, that sounds good. Well, it's got John's stamp of approval. I think I think uh, that means you got to run with it now, Tony. You're gonna have to. Yes, I, there will be an email to Tony today. All right, so right now, out of booksellers everywhere is We Shall Rise, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole, a wonderful anthology set in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising uh, universe. Um, Gary Poole, uh, Jason Cordova, Lydia Scherer, Mike Massa, and John Ringo, thank you so much for Bye. us. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thanks, See you around. Move it, Eric. That was part one of a two-part roundtable discussion of We Shall Rise. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. 
For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has won the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. HMS Imperator Sol System Honor stood once again on Imperator's flag deck, but it was very different from the last time she'd stood there. Now, Hamish stood beside her, Samantha on his shoulder, and she savored the mind glows of her staff and the Flagbridge crew. She tasted the lingering echoes of disbelief and their bright, transcendent joy. Not for themselves, for her. Her eyes burned as that tide of emotion washed through her. But in an odd way, it only refined and purified her cold, focused purpose. There was still hate deep inside her and in the emotions about her. The fact that Hamish and Jacques Benton Ramirez-E Chu, Tobias Stimson, Barkchewer's Bane, and Samantha had been returned to them could not miraculously restore the millions of other dead to life. Perhaps the intensely personal corrosiveness of her own hatred had been dulled. Perhaps she'd been returned to that point where her duty was duty, not an excuse for mass slaughter. But Operation Nemesis was still there, still waiting, and she was just as grimly determined to complete it as she'd ever been. The master display had been configured to show a panoramic view of the space around Old Terra. She gazed into it, waiting, feeling the anticipation thrum in her nerves. Only another few minutes, and... Coming up on the mark, your grace, Andrea Jarawalski said, and she nodded. Then she glanced over her shoulder at Hamish, and her lips quirked ever so slightly. In that case, Andrea, she said, never looking away from her husband. Let's be about it. He returned her smile, and she turned back to the display, and this time, her voice came out flat and cold. Execute, she said. Aye, aye, your grace. Jarawalski's voice was harder than steel. Executing now. She pressed the button, and the visual display erupted with twice a dozen tiny suns. They raced through Old Earth's industrial zone, each of them the death beacon of a major fabrication platform. A sphere of fire blazed about the mother world, filling night skies ever so briefly with a spiteful, devastating dawn. A matching sphere, even denser, blazed around Mars, crowned Venus in flame, and answering pyres glared deep in the asteroid belt, rode Jupiter's orbit, rose like beacons of vengeance throughout the length and breadth and depth of the Sol system. And in other places, where no charges had been planted, lac grazers shredded scores, hundreds of minor platforms. The habitats of individual asteroid miners, the bunk room habitats of hydrogen refinery crews, communications arrays, observation platforms, monitoring stations, freight platforms, shipyards, servicing facilities, navigation and traffic control stations, every single artificial structure in the entire solar system, 2,000 T years of building and construction and dreams. 
everything within a sphere 11 light hours across vanished in that single, dreadful, perfectly coordinated cataclysm. Everything except the major orbital habitats and the power satellites. Honor watched those intolerable pinpricks spall the visual display. She listened to the reports from CIC as the tide of destruction rolled through the birth system of humanity, and she knew she had just become the most hated woman in Solarian history. And she didn't care. She waited ten minutes by the clock, then nodded to Harper Brantley. Put me through, she said, and looked back to her comp pickup. Aye, aye, your grace, he said. He punched in a command, then nodded back to her. Live mic, your grace he told her. She waited another moment, letting her face, her expression register on the eyes at the other end of the FTL link and the eight Hermes buoys riding in geosynchronous orbit around Earth and Mars, the buoys whose signals cut simultaneously into the feeds of every major news channel in the entire star system. I am Admiral Harrington of the Royal Manticoran Navy, she told the 10 or 12 billion human beings watching her at that moment. I am speaking to you on behalf of my empress, the president of the Republic of Haven, the protector of Grayson, and all of our allied star systems. For the last T year, my empress and her allies have called upon the corrupt bureaucrats running the Solarian League as their personal fiefdom to stop their unprovoked attacks and aggression against our star nations. We have persistently warned against further escalations of the conflict. We and our friends within the League attempted to be the voice of reason. For their effort, my empress and her allies were called warmongers, imperialists, war criminals, and those within the League who attempted to be the voice of sanity were reviled as traitors and threatened with military action, including an operations plan specifically designed to violate the League's own constitutional prohibition against deliberate mass casualty events. Indeed, only the gallantry of a single squadron of Manticoran cruisers who sacrificed themselves engaging 200 Solarian battlecruisers prevented the Solarian League Navy from murdering 6 million civilians in the Hypatia system alone. 90% of that cruiser squadron's personnel paid with their lives to prevent that act of mass murder. During the past year, the Solarian League Navy has suffered literally millions of casualties against our allied navies. In that time, the SLN has not won a single major engagement. Admiral Crandall's fleet was annihilated or captured to the last ship in the Talbot Quadrant. Admiral Filaretta's fleet suffered the same fate in Manticore itself. Naval Station Ganymede, right here in the Sol system, was surrendered without inflicting a single casualty on the forces under my command. Every mobile unit of the SLN, every fleet base, every maintenance platform, every tanker in the Sol system has been destroyed or is occupied by my personnel and I have just completed the destruction of every deep space industrial facility in the star system. They are gone as if they had never existed. She paused to let that sink in, then smiled thinly and coldly. I realize many of you believe our allegations about the existence of the Mason alignment are either a fabrication to justify our own criminal imperialist expansion, or else the product of the deranged paranoia only to be expected from people who support the abolitionist movement, from people who believe there is actually something evil and depraved in manufacturing human beings as property and then trading and selling them. I know that. My empress and her allies know that. 
But we really don't care whether or not you believe us. Not anymore, except in one way. Your corrupt rulers, the Mandarins, have aided and enabled the alignment from the beginning. Perhaps that wasn't their intention. Perhaps they genuinely didn't believe what we told them. But whether it was their intention or not, the consequence is the same. And whether it was their intention or not, their actions remain equally vile and contemptible. A rank violation of interstellar law and solemn interstellar conventions, the Solarian League itself sponsored and guaranteed over the centuries. They dispatched fleets, not squadrons, not task forces, but fleets containing hundreds of super dreadnoughts to attack our star systems and our people without even seeking a formal declaration of war, without provocation, when every shot that we had fired was in self-defense. The Yawata strike, carried out, we believe, by the alignment, killed eight million people, including the total population of the city of Yawata, where 90% of my own family lived. The SLN was prepared to murder six million more in Hypatia. And two weeks ago, the SLN attacked Beowulf, the oldest extrasolar colony in the galaxy, the star system which led the fight to save this star system's population from extinction after old Earth's final war the star system which sponsored the Solarian League's constitution. And in the course of that attack, over 43 million civilian citizens of Beowulf were killed. She paused once more, and the flag bridge was as still and silent about her as the vacuum beyond Imperator's Hull. We have tried from the beginning to minimize casualties and loss of life, she said then, her voice like hammered copper. Until today, until I arrived in the Sol system with my fleet, we had not initiated a single conflict with the Solarian League Navy or any of the League's armed forces. We have stood our ground, we have defended our friends and allies, but we have not attempted to take the war to the League as we have just conclusively demonstrated we might have done at any time. The Manticore binary system was attacked in a blatant Eridani violation, and the Mandarin's only response the sole response of the star nation whose constitution enshrines a specific obligation to punish Eridani violations was to capitalize upon it. Instead of seeking out whoever had committed it, instead of even so much as verbally condemning it, they dispatched Admiral Filaretta to complete the Star Empire's destruction. Since that time, half a dozen neutral star systems have been attacked, their economies totally destroyed by the Solarian League Navy. Beowulf has suffered millions upon millions of deaths as a consequence of the aggression of the Solarian League. And in all that time, we have not killed a single civilian in a single League system. Even today, we have not killed a single civilian. We have attempted to use diplomacy. We have attempted to use economic pressure. We have done everything we possibly could to bring this conflict to an end without mass destruction, without mass murders. And our reward? has been to have our civilians, our families, murdered in their millions instead. This ends today. Her eyes glittered. Nimitz rose high and proud on her shoulder, baring his fangs, and her nostrils flared. These are the demands of the Grand Alliance, the conditions upon which this travesty will end. First, the unelected bureaucrats who created and drove this conflict will be arrested by the League and surrendered to us to be tried for crimes against humanity on a scale the galaxy has not seen in over a thousand years. Second, every unit of the Solarian League Navy outside a member system of the Solarian League will be withdrawn immediately. 
any unit of the SLN found outside a member system of the League within one month of this moment will be regarded as a piratic vessel, not a legitimate ship of war protected by the Deneb Accords, which the Solarian League Navy has already demonstrated its willingness to ignore. As such, it will be summarily destroyed and will not be permitted to surrender. She paused a heartbeat for that to sink in. Third, the Legislative Assembly of the Solarian League will immediately summon a constitutional convention to meet here, in the Sol system, to write a new constitution for the Solarian League. You will not attempt to repair or amend the abortion which permitted the Mandarins to cause so many millions of deaths. You will write a constitution which places authority and responsibility in the hands of elected officials, not unelected bureaucrats governing by fiat and regulation. The Alliance does not care what form that government takes. Republic, constitutional monarchy, or any other form is perfectly acceptable to us, so long as it precludes the resurgence of the corrupt, venal, unaccountable oligarchy which plunged the galaxy into this bloodbath. Fourth, that constitution will guarantee the right of any present member of the Solarian League to leave the League. It will dissolve the protectorates. It will return ownership of all property of any sort whatsoever it or any private Solarian entity may control in any star system of the protectorates to the government and citizens of that star system. It will disband the Office of Frontier Security, and it will create a process and an established procedure by which any present or future member system of the Solarian League may legally secede upon the vote of three-quarters or more of its population and it would be wise of that constitution to take cognizance of the fact that the Alliance will stand sponsor to those secession votes and support their outcomes. She paused once again and squared her shoulders. I have communicated the Alliance's terms and conditions publicly so that there can be no misunderstanding, so that no one like Malachi Abruzzi can distort them, lie about them. And I also inform you today that the Alliance will see to it that those demands and conditions are met. We will not put armed forces on Old Earth. We will not invade any of the League's member worlds. We will not send our personnel to take the Mandarins into custody. We will not threaten the life of anyone on any League planet. We have taken no civilian lives here in the Sol system. We will continue to avoid the infliction of mass casualties. But if these terms are not accepted, if the motion to assemble a constitutional convention has not cleared the assembly within one month, I will divide Grand Fleet into four task forces, and those task forces will proceed to the next four wealthiest star systems in the Solarian League. When they reach their destinations, they will do to those star systems what I have done today to yours. And at the end of another month, if these terms still have not been accepted, they will move to the next four wealthiest star systems, and the next four they will continue doing so until our conditions are accepted or there are no more industrialized systems in the Solarian League. She let the threat lie before them, cold and stinking of danger, and then she inhaled deeply. Those are the Alliance's terms. The choice to accept or reject them is yours. I advise you to choose wisely. Harrington Clear That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. 
And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And the lights in the sky and the fire in the belly and the ringing in your ears that you really ought to answer. Plus thanks, praise and gratitude to Gary Poole, Jason Cordova, Lydia Scherer, Mike Massa and John Ringo, editors and authors of We Shall Rise. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.